0: This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 24th of June 2023. I'm Georgina Godwin broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through this morning's papers from across the world with Andrew Muller. Plus the women of Stockholm weaving for peace.
1: I think it's just universal language for us to understand each other because you don't need words.
0: And musings on the future of NATO.
1: Even if right now many politicians are clearer and clearer in their words, there will be no business as usual. still not very clear what this business as not usual is going to be, of course. All of that
0: coming up right here on Monocle on Saturday. First, though, here's the news. Chief of the Russian mercenary Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, says he sent an armed convoy on a 1,200-kilometre charge towards Moscow today in an unlikely attempt to topple the military leadership. This follows the Russian authorities' allegations that Prigozhin had staged an armed mutiny after he alleged that the military leadership had killed a huge number of his fighters in an airstrike and vowed to punish them. The FSB Domestic Security Service says it's opened a criminal case against Purgosian for armed mutiny, a crime punishable with a jail term of up to 20 years. This weekend, voters in Sierra Leone will be choosing a president, MPs and councillors in the West African country's fifth election since the civil war ended in 2002. The election comes after a landmark law was passed, making it mandatory for women to make up 30% of all positions in both the public and private sector, including government, though this is unlikely to happen in the next parliament. Eleven people were injured on Cathay Pacific Flight CX880 at Hong Kong's International Airport early today, after the carrier aborted takeoff due to a technical issue. The flight to Los Angeles was carrying 17 crew and 293 passengers. One of the plane's tyres overheated, causing it to burst, according to police. And in Mexico City, hundreds of same-sex couples and transgender people celebrated weddings and the completion of administrative processes to change their gender on Friday in a mass ceremony before the city's annual Gay Pride March today. In 2009, Mexico City was the first jurisdiction In Latin America to legalise same sex marriage. It took until last October for the rest of the country to follow suit. There will be huge celebrations today. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined in the studio now by Andrew Muller. And the plan had been, Andrew, that we would sit here and gently take apart the papers, maybe have a bit of a laugh, a nice coffee. Basically a relaxed morning, but anybody who's just been listening to the news will know that that's actually not the way things are going to go.
2: No, it is the proverbial slow news day today.
0: (laughs) Uh, We've just been hearing in the news, of course, about events in Russia, and I think that the best thing we can do is get an expert on the line. So uh, James Rogers is standing by now. He's his latest book is Assignment Moscow: A History of Reporting from Russia, where of course he was a BBC correspondent for a long time. Uh, He's 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 now an academic. Uh, James, I. I understand we've caught you on your power walk um but we just wanted to get more of a sense of what on earth is going on in russia what do you know
3: well it's astonishing the way that things have unfolded in the last 24 hours or so it's of course no surprise um that uh, yevgeny prigozhin the head of Wagner, uh, this mi- mercenary company who's long been deeply critical of the russian military establishment but what seems to have happened in the last 24 hours or so is he's saying that one of his camps was attacked by Russian Ministry of Defense troops, in other words, the Russian army. And he is now demanding that the Russian government hand over to him um, the chief of the general staff, General Gerasimov, and the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, He's been long been critical of these two men the way they've been conducting the war. He's also criticised the, the base of the war and the way, and really astonishing things that you know the kind of thing that would have landed journalists in jail probably a year or so ago in Russia when those strict laws were brought in after the start of the war. Uh, and now it seems that he's in control of the Russian military headquarters in Rostov, a major city in southern Russia, the staging post and and the headquarters of the whole of the Russian Army's southern, southern command. Uh, and is threatening to march on Moscow unless these two men are handed over to him.
0: And Vladimir Putin has been speaking in the last few minutes. What's he been saying?
3: Well, he's saying he's about to crush what he's described uh, as a mutiny or a rebellion, and that that stern action will be taken. Uh, So there is every sign that this is... Of course, in Russia, one is used to seeing things that are done for the benefits of the cameras, but this does seem to be a very, very serious confrontation. The question now is, Does Mr. Prigozhin have the power to mount any sort of challenge to the Russian state? Uh, He certainly hasn't got the same kind of numbers of troops that the Russian army has at uh, at its control. But, you know, these are hardened mercenaries. And one of the things we've seen during this war is that the average Russian conscript infantryman is not particularly highly trained or highly motivated. So there is a big question as to what kind of damage he could inflict on the Russian establishment, should he decide to do so. I should add, though, um, I mean, the video that's appeared of him talking, of of Yevgeny Prigozhin saying, you know, we're now in charge of the Russian Army's Southern Command headquarters, it does seem to be reasonably good-natured so far. In other words, you know, there hasn't actually been any fighting around there, but it does seem that this is a very, very serious development, and probably absolutely the last thing that President Putin needs, this sort of public challenge to his authority, at a time when the campaign is not going as well as it, as it perhaps could be. Because if you think about it, if what can President Putin do? If he decides to hand these two men over, then clearly he's saying, in effect, he doesn't have the authority to decide who's the chief of general staff and who is the defence minister. So what kind of presidential authority is that?
2: Um, James, based on your experience of Russia and your understanding of it now, is it possible to surmise what understanding of these events ordinary Russians will have? As far as I'm able to tell, Russian state television is not quite yet broadcasting Swan Lake, but there are a lot of clips of clearly extremely panicked presenters not entirely sure what the script is.
3: Yeah, I think that's it, Andrew. I, mean, I think that's it. As I, said, you know, as I suggested earlier, there are sometimes things which are staged in Russia for the benefit of the cameras. This is clearly not one of them. I would imagine there'd been a long discussion um, before, um, you know, the people who are close to Mr. Putin who are ma- taking decisions for him decided that he should actually go on television to respond because obviously at that point he's basically saying, yes, this is real, whereas otherwise it could be dismissed as rumours or provocations, as they might say, in Russia. So, yes, I think this is, it is pretty serious. Um, what order are people making of it? Well, I mean, it's difficult to say. You know, it's been a long time since we could get any real sense of public opinion in Russia. But, um, you know, Prigozhin is, is, you know, I think a, a degree of the, the Russian public will think, you know, say what you like about him, but he, he tells you how it is. You know, and people will be responding to his message. I think the question is, it's a huge challenge for President Putin, as I say, when things are not going as well as he hoped in Ukraine. I think it's always useful to remember this was supposed to be a war that was over in three days or so, you know, with the Russian army marching in triumph through Kiev. It hasn't gone anything like that. And now, Wagner, who have played a significant part in the overall Russian military campaign in Ukraine, seems to be turning against him. So... I think um, there's going to be big questions amongst the Russian population about the way the war is being conducted.
0: James, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to speak to us. That's James Rogers there. Uh, And uh, back to to us in the studio. Andrew, I mean, this is a a breaking story. We don't know what's happening at the moment. We've got various bits of information coming through. Of course, Putin giving that speech in Moscow. He says that they've been the stabbed in the back uh, was, was the word he used. We know there's an arrest warrant out for Prigozhin, but we don't know if anybody's willing to act on that.
2: Uh, we have, unfortunately, at the moment, very little idea what is going on and this is one of those moments at which actually the best experts to take seriously are the ones who will admit at certain key junctures. I simply don't know. Uh, anybody who tells you right now they are in possession of all the facts uh, is winging it furiously. It's very, very likely at a moment like this that neither Vladimir Putin nor Yevgeny are in possession of all the facts, but as as James correctly points out, and I think that is the, the key point here, Vladimir Putin is past trying to style this out. The fact that he went on television and said that a substantial military mutiny is underway is a huge, huge development. Um, And it is very hard to see from this point, and this is something else that James alluded to, what Vladimir Putin's good options are. Even if he puts this mutiny down, um, it is very, very clear that he is no longer entirely in charge. Everybody is focused on Russia, and quite rightly, because the prospect of collapse, disorder, open conflict within Russia is not a happy one either. But the thing to keep in mind, and at the risk of tempting all the fates, this looks like an extremely good day for Ukraine.
0: Absolutely. Andrew, obviously, we're going to return to this uh, story as as developments occur. Uh, But now, you'll have heard the phrase, make love, not war. But how about craft? That's exactly what a collective of women in Sweden are doing as Russia continues to bombard Ukraine. The group is called Women Weave for Peace and they're currently working on a series of artworks as part of a project called Crafts That Unite, Heal and Last. Well, Monocle's uh, Isabella Jewell caught up with the woman who who created the group. She is Ludmilla Christie Siva at the Oslo Freedom Forum. As the pair spoke, fabric was being torn into strips to make their latest art piece dedicated to human rights defenders.
1: Sometimes when uh, you don't have... um words left to express how much you hate Putin or I'm from Belarus, I hate Lukashenko. When you don't have words left, you maybe can weave together.
4: Ludmila Kristoseva is a Belarusian artist based in Sweden. Last year, when Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, she launched Women Weave for Peace. It's a project which brings Swedish women together with Ukrainian refugee mothers and sons who gather to weave together. I met Ludmilla at the Oslo Freedom Forum, where her troop of Ukrainian women were weaving the word
1: solidarity into a large net using scraps of fabric and crochet squares. You have a team of Ukrainian refugee mothers and sons and they are putting up the net. For weaving project for peace and freedom, we also decided that we want to say much more. We want to say messages like home and solidarity to people around the world. Where in Ukraine are you from? I am from uh, Kharkiv. This uh, woman from Odessa. The
4: Ukrainian women weaving for peace all have loved ones still in Ukraine and while their work is partly therapeutic a way of connecting through craft they're also supporting those fighting back home
1: This net is actually produced to use as the balconies for for, for cats but we appropriated it first, uh, one year ago, to produce camouflage nets for Ukrainian army. And uh, after doing this, um, every Saturday since the war in Ukraine began, uh, and uh, sending handmade uh, camouflage nets to Ukraine to save lives. You make them for hand, you use recycled textiles of certain uh, color palette, and uh, you have uh, quite different techniques. we send them uh, uh, through different voluntarily NGOs to Ukraine to um, soldiers. We also send things uh, Ukrainian families uh, need so it's very um, uh, in our case we collaborate with um, uh, other NGOs in Sweden so we can weave and we can support uh, uh, both uh, Uh, Ukrainian families in Sweden and also uh, in Ukraine.
4: For Lyudmila, this project is also a personal one.
1: I uh, was born in Belarus and my ex-partner, he is Russian, his uh, new wife is uh, Ukrainian and my children, they are Swedish. So when the war in Ukraine began, they asked me, Mother, it is war, so what's, what's going on, what can we do together? And for me, it was just very natural to react and to welcome Ukrainian refugees to Stockholm through the Women Workshop. I want the, the, these women, and especially their sons, to have different life. I'm impressed myself by uh, the act of weaving unites people. I think it's uh, just universal uh, language for us to understand each other because you don't need words. Women Weave for Peace is one of many projects
4: that have popped up across Europe, aimed at supporting the almost six million Ukrainians who fled the country after Russia's full-scale invasion.
1: Sweden has uh, 50,000 refugees, and uh, it's a very active country welcoming uh, Ukrainian refugees. But I think the main job uh, we do, volunteers, people, they meet on the Swedish streets. So I think we, uh, we are the power. That
0: was artist Ludmila Kristaseva speaking to Isabella Jewell and uh, you're listening to Monocle on Saturday with me Georgina Godwin and in the studio a special treat for me is my colleague Andrew Muller uh, Andrew as we were saying at the top this is meant to be quite a light-hearted fun show mm. but in fact we are right in the middle of a breaking news story it's a defining moment in Russia's 16-month full-scale invasion of Ukraine uh, possibly uh, presents a challenge to Vladimir Putin's grip on power and it's because the VAR uh, 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 mercenary boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, is uh, basically marching towards Moscow. We don't know what's going to happen, but we will come back to the story. Uh, But in the interim, I think it's vitally important we speak about (laughs) (laughs) e-scooters.
2: Yes, seamless gear change uh, in stories this is. Um, Those uh, listeners who have already consumed uh, this morning's uh, weekend edition, which is our free daily email newsletter, and if you haven't signed up already, why would you not, um, will be aware that I have written uh, on a related matter this morning, and it is a subject I may have mentioned once or twice before. Um, I have happy tidings reported in British a couple of British newspapers, uh, The Telegraph in particular. Uh, there are to be new sentencing guidelines for e-scooter riders who injure pedestrians. They could now face up to two years in the clink. Um, that's a start. Uh, in, in my view, I, I don't believe it is anything like severe enough. I mean, I would advocate even for e-scooter riders who are not injuring pedestrians, tarring, feathering and being thrown <laughs> into the Thames um, along with their e-scooter. Uh, th- the point I was trying to make in this in this morning's piece in, in the weekend edition was that it's good that cities promote cycling and it is good that cities promote non-automotive means of transport, but cities I think have increasingly forgotten that there are people like me, um, i.e. non-drivers and non-cyclists I am a pedestrian and I I was inspired to write particularly by my recent visit to Bratislava where there is or what should be an absolutely delightful pathway uh, along the Danube River, it's the way to walk from the the hotel where I was staying into the old town Uh, and it is basically if you are on foot, genuinely entirely unnavigable um, because of cyclists, electric skateboardists, skateboardists, uh, e-scooters in particular, um, and extraordinary contraptions which appear to be prevalent um, in Eastern Europe which are halfway between the e-scooter and something that one of Mad Max's lieutenants might have ridden. Um, it's, it's, it's genuinely difficult to navigate. Um, I, I did, as the and this is giving up my piece um, in the weekend edition this morning, also Uh, I I, I called the Metropolitan Police and asked them for some figures that would illustrate uh, the degree to which they are attempting at all to police the behaviour of cyclists and e-scooters and basically they're not.
0: And what is the law? Are they allowed to be on the pavement? Uh, In
2: the United Kingdom, no, absolutely not. They're not allowed anywhere. Um, If if they are part of an actually licensed hire scheme, you can ride them, but you can't ride them on the footpath. Privately owned e-scooters in the United Kingdom cannot be ridden on public roads at all in any circumstances, is the actual law, uh, but a law is not a law if nobody bothers to enforce it. And this particular one, nobody does.
0: Uh, i tell you one thing that has always horrified me to do, not just with e-scooter e-sco- riders, but indeed even pedestrians and, and people on bikes, is uh, walking around with your headphones on, uh, I feel that if you can't hear what's going on, you're putting yourself and other people in danger. Absolutely,
2: sure. I mean, I'm I'm quite willing to cop to walking around with headphones on, but I'm walking. If I bump into somebody, the amount of damage I'm going to do them is fairly minimal. But you regularly see people on cyclists and other contraptions at high speed with headphones on, uh, quite often also uh, staring into their phones with one hand while they ride with the other. Uh, and, and I do think, I mean, I, I realise that this is proper you know grouchy old man waving his walking stick at clouds territory but I do think also this is a serious urbanism issue if they want cities to be more walkable and more accessible to pedestrians people need to be able to walk about them in confidence and safety and you know genuinely I I am somebody who is reasonably alert and agile many people in cities are older they are children they are suffering from disabilities i can see that it can become genuinely quite alarming absolutely uh
0: sometimes when i look at people with their headphones on i'm deeply interested in what it is they're listening to uh and uh that uh, interest is indeed sharpened when i look at our leaders now there's an article out about seamless, <laughs>
2: seamless Georgina
0: <laughs> stop it don't embarrass me i was you don't honestly andrew you have to point out the fact that that was quite clunky okay <laughs> no that
2: was that, 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 that was an that was an absolute belter but a, a can, master at work
0: can you tell where i'm going with this i can,
2: right? t- I can tell where you're going <laughs> with, with this um this this is to quite a, a genuinely very fun story uh, in the guardian australia which has been going through the the records of hospitality accepted by our our, our by which i mean my fellow australians uh last three prime ministers in order to d- discern what we might learn about their musical tastes um, and i have to say Uh, That Australia's current Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, uh, comes out of this looking reasonably good. Uh, We have discovered that the previous Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was a big Taylor Swift fan. Uh, He did tap somebody up for free tickets uh, to see Taylor Swift the last time she toured Australia in 2018. Albanese, interestingly, uh, has accepted free tickets to see Jimmy Barnes and Midnight Oil, uh, two venerable Australian rock institutions, but his disclosures note that he was given the tickets by the artists in question, so that's probably fair enough. Uh, He also went to see The Pixies uh, and Nick Cave. Um, but the, the the bit I really liked, I remember writing about this for Monocle at the time, that when he hosted uh, Jacinda Ardern, who was then Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, in June last year, um, they, they exchanged records. Uh, Albanese gave her some records by Midnight Oil, Spiderbait and Powderfinger, all, again, venerable Australian rock institutions. But... The two things I, li- I liked at the time, that she gave him a selection of records by the venerable um, New Zealand independent label Flying Nun. Uh-huh. Um, and I like the fact that Albanese has kept them, uh, according to his disclosures. And this does lead me at a seamless tee-up of my own uh, to a treat we have coming up, that recently in this very studio, we have not broadcast it yet, uh, we had Martin Phillips of The Chills, uh, Flying Nun's probably most important and influential band, playing a very old Chills song uh, on a guitar that i lent him for the purpose um which was a, a a genuinely lovely moment one of those ones where you sit there watching it thinking how would i explain this to my 19 year old self uh but we we, we we do have that one coming up on an imminent episode of the daily
0: that's excellent um now speaking of of australian leaders and their musical tastes i can tell you uh and i'm not going to reveal how i know this but that julia gillard went to the opera on Thursday evening
2: here in London. Did she indeed? Mm -hmm. Uh, She's got slightly more highfalutin (laughs) tastes than Albanese then.
0: (laughs) She certainly does. Uh, Andrew, I actually want to talk about more things that you've been doing on your your foreign desk, Um, because uh, today you are premiering with a special new episode
2: examining the future of NATO. Yeah, I am am sitting here right now, as you can imagine, frantically going through the script in my head, worrying if any of it is going to be overtaken by events. I think... (laughs) I think we're okay unless NATO saddles up some sort of intervention force to rescue Vladimir Putin from Yevgeny Prigozhin. Who knows?
0: Uh, uh, and as long as they do that before midday, which is when the programme on. Yeah,
2: if, if, they could, if they could avoid making any dramatic interventions until half past 12, I, for one, would be a lot happier.
0: Andrew, here is what you asked the former president of Estonia.
2: With Jens Stoltenberg due to conclude his term as Secretary-General, would NATO benefit from being led perhaps by somebody who has led one of the countries which directly abuts Russia?
1: Yes, and he's a woman and Eastern European, (laughs) indeed.
2: And there are many of us and
1: we're all ready to serve, I'm quite sure. Uh, tell us about that. Uh,
2: That's uh, former President Kirsty Kallulade of Estonia. I I have now asked her variations on that question three or four times. It's becoming quite the running gag. Um, She is one of the names that is mentioned in connection with the presumably shortly to become uh, available post of Secretary General of NATO. Uh, There is a lot of talk that it is past time that the Secretary General was a woman uh, and there is a lot of talk that it would be appropriate, what with one thing and another, that it was some from further east uh, generally in the past the secretary general's job has been a bit of a lock for uh, either nordic or british men there have been a, a, a few exceptions to that but not all that many but there is now some talk that Jens stoltenberg may be asked to go round yet again uh, to demonstrate i think continuity and solidity and a willingness to stick with a known quantity, mm. but um, Kirsty Kallulaid has been discussed uh, in relation with that role, as has Ingrid Shiminita, the Prime Minister of Lithuania, who also appears on the hopefully not to be overtaken by events episode of The Foreign Desk in a couple of hours.
0: Uh, and you'll be jet-setting to Vilnius soon. Uh,
2: we will be jet-setting to Vilnius next weekend, I think. Is, is it next weekend? It is next weekend. Uh, for the, the upcoming NATO summit, um, which I'm, I'm looking forward to very much, uh, although uh, the agenda may be being furiously rewritten uh, even as we sit here. Gen- gen- I mean, that's Actually, that's quite a weird thing to think when you think where we could be a week from now. Um Nobody has any idea at all. So there will not be a shortage of things to discuss uh, that week that uh, once we get to Vilnius. No.
0: Uh, I'm quite sure. Uh, Andrew, I'm just checking the wires just to see if there's anything new on on what's going on in Russia. And really, the the kind of latest things that that are hitting uh, the major organs were all about half an hour ago. So we're pretty much caught up. Nothing more to add to that at the moment. But I'm quite sure that uh, that story will be moving on uh, soon. And a, a lot of, of course, a lot of social media posts. And once again, the caution, you do not have to believe everything you read. I find one of the things that the annoying things about twitter having lost its uh blue tick is that you're you know now anybody with a blue tick is just somebody with um you know eight dollars <laughs> yep. uh, who can who can sound off about it not that every blue tick was entirely reliable but it did give you some kind of steer
2: i mean i had a blue tick that's how reliable it was yeah, uh, but, totally but no <laughs> you you do make a point that th- th- this is a moment at which uh An information ecosystem like Twitter can become extremely useful and it can also become uh, extremely unhelpful. Um, the, The blue the blue ticks, all jokes aside, did used to be quite helpful at a moment like this. But regular listeners to our programs will be familiar with the names of a lot of the people we have on. To talk about Russia, people like James Rogers, Mark Galliotti, Tom Nichols, uh, Stephen Dill—they uh, are some or all of those are up and about and all over this. And I do recommend following them. Also, the coverage of Medusa, um, the Russian news site, which obviously no longer operates in Russia, and the Kiev Independent. Um, who, judging by their own posts, are are, are enjoying themselves this morning, but <laughs> as they are absolutely abundantly uh, entitled to do. But there are good-ish sources available, but at the moment, this is really no one knows what's going on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think in that case, we should just end with uh, some moms, as they call themselves, <laughs> some moms in Indiana, moms for liberty, uh, quoting Hitler. Because everything always ends up with Hitler, doesn't
2: it? Uh, it, it? It does end up quoting Hitler. I mean, this this is this is a fairly cheap shot. This is just l- laughing at um, right wing American dingbats who haven't done their research. Uh, yes, this is the Indiana, chap- Indiana chapter easy to say quickly at this hour of the day uh moms for liberty uh they advocate for parental rights in education which i suspect means the right to tell teachers that they shouldn't be teaching their children about dinosaurs um or whatever but yes they, they did issue uh, a their inaugural newsletter in fact in which they managed to quote Adolf Hitler, um, which is just a thing you should probably avoid doing in most circumstances unless you are actually discussing the subject of the thoughts, deeds and words of Adolf Hitler. Um, they they ha- even attributed it to him. <coughs> well, they did. They did. And, and again, this is... Uh, h- had they spoken, first of all, uh, Georgina, to, you know, communications professionals such as ourselves, who I'm sure would have been on hand to advise them for a very reasonable retainer... <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) One of the first things we would have said to them is don't approvingly quote Adolf Hitler in your inaugural newsletter or indeed in any of your public communications in general. Because if you do, you find yourself and okay, one shouldn't laugh, but having to issue statements along the lines of. And I quote, "Uh, we condemn Adolf Hitler's actions and his dark place in human history. We should not have quoted him in our newsletter and express our deepest apology. Uh, And that's when you get um, to at the risk of sounding like one of those people who spends too much time uh, on social media. We are in the realm of the uh, we should not have quoted Hitler T-shirt is raising a lot of questions already answered by the T-shirt.
0: And Can I just tell you before we go that this is actually an example of Godwin's law. No um, relation. It is, it is. Uh, it's a saying made up by Mike Godwin in 1990. The law states, as a discussion on the internet grows longer, the likelihood of a person being compared to Hitler or another Nazi increases. That means as more people take, t- take, talk on the internet for a longer time, it becomes more and more likely that someone will talk about Hitler.
2: Uh, absolutely the case. As, as Moms for Liberty or whatever it was have abundantly demonstrated.
0: Yeah, so that's Mike Godwin. No relation, as I say. <laughs> I'm Georgina Godwin. Many thanks to Andrew Muller and also to our studio engineer, Sam Impey and our producer, Isabella Jewell. And of course, the programme Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. Thanks for listening.